Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's great to be back with you this week. We really do appreciate your prayers for our family. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are at uh, verse 17 tonight. Find my place there. We have been uh, to this uh, point, two weeks ago I should say anyway, we uh, saw Paul speak about the trouble uh, in the church at uh, Corinth in the public gathering. Uh, Two weeks ago the trouble was the way men and women related to one another uh, in their dress, in their demeanor, in their uh, conduct. They were supposed to evidence that Uh, God had made male and female different, but instead they had been denying those distinctions. Now, I just want to comment on that from two weeks ago. Uh, That remains as relevant today as it was when Paul wrote it. Just this week, the BBC reported that some schools in Vancouver are doing away with the uh, old-fashioned pronouns he and she in favor of new gender-neutral pronouns like Z, totally made up. Instead of he or she, him or her, his or her, students will be referred to as Z, Zem, and Zir. That's X-E, X-E-M, X-Y-R. There's a hypersensitivity to uh, maleness and femaleness and an effort at downplaying that. That's, of course, been going on for thousands of years, but God is interested in our maleness and femaleness, as we saw last week. At least one reason is Jesus is the bridegroom of his beloved bride, the church. And so in marriage, male and female matter t- as a dramatic representation, uh, ideally, of, uh, of that relationship. Well, anyway, th- anyway there's, there's nothing new under the sun, we might say. And the question always is, who do we listen to? Do we follow the ever-changing opinions of, of man or the everlasting and unchanging word of God? Tonight we see Paul tackle a new question in Corinth. It's a problem of the way the believers had gathered at the Lord's table. The way they were celebrating the sacrament, we'll see in just a moment, was bad. And it needed to be corrected. So let's listen to what God's word says to them and let's learn for ourselves as well as we hear God's word. Let me invite you to consider then 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 17 through 34. This is the word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. (laughs) For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we do, we ask uh, that you would show us your glory, that you would lift Jesus before our eyes, uh, that you would uh, teach us, rebuke us, correct us. Train us in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The church has always had conflict over the Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, what did he mean? Well, in the medieval uh, church, the Roman Catholic Church took it one way, and Luther took it another way, and Zwingli took it another way, and Calvin took it another way still. Indeed, when the words, this is my body, were translated into Latin for the Latin Vulgate, which was the, the Bible of the medieval church, it was rendered hoc est corpus meum, if that's how you pronounce the Latin, this is my body. And from that expression, we get the expression hocus pocus. Hocus pocus, because something magical was supposed to be happening according to some. And so some words of incantation were being spoken over the host, and hocus pocus, it turns into the body and blood of Jesus. That's where the expression comes from. Look, that disagreement isn't just a 1500s Reformation era disagreement. By the year 818, the monk Radbertus had advocated something very much like the Roman Catholic position about the sacrament, and and a fellow monk, Ratramnus, had advocated a position somewhat very similar to a classic Reformed view of these things. 
400 years after them in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, it gets codified and officially adopted. And 300 years later, it's that view that the reformers call into question at the time of the Protestant Reformation. But it has a, it has a backstory even further back than I said. It's always been conflict. But of, of course, um, that isn't the only conflict in the history of the church over the Lord's Supper. Not to make this a history lecture, but let me just highlight two more conflicts that we've had in the long 2,000-year history. There has been a conflict over who gets to drink the bread and the wine. In 1414, at the Council of Constance, the church took away the cup from the laity and said only the priest could drink the wine. Only the presiding priest could drink the wine. And of course, uh, there are a variety of reasons for that. If you think that it has, the, the wine has actually become the literal blood of Jesus, you don't want to spill Jesus anywhere. So it's dangerous to hand him out. It's also why you put a wafer in the mouth of the person. So crumbs don't fall if it's truly the body of Jesus. The regular people of God were only given bread, and that, that view was confirmed after the Reformation by the Council of Trent in 1545. And today even, today even in the Roman church, um, you can only drink the cup at the celebration of the Eucharist if your bishop thinks it's okay for you to do so. Bishops still have the right to deny it to their people, and many still don't take the wine. They only get the bread. So there's been conflict about who eats and drinks at the table. But there's also been a history of conflict over whether or not the Lord's Supper, this is the third conflict, uh, should be part of a larger love feast. Frankly, a kind of potluck meal. And because of abuses with a large love feast, abuses like the rich pigging out and some people getting drunk, abuses we see Paul trying to correct at Corinth, Because of those abuses, a council at Laodicea in 364 restricted the holding of meals in churches. And in 692, uh, there was a council that decreed that those who held love feasts or potluck meals should be excommunicated from the church if they hold them in the church. Now, I smile because next week is our monthly potluck meal. And uh, look, if it's the case that we should all be excommunicated, then you may not want to come. But if you do come, please do wait your turn and don't get drunk. We can certainly say that. So listen, apparently the abuses at Corinth continued on in various churches after Paul. And his words went unheeded. So these things had to be addressed literally hundreds of years later. In the church at Corinth, what was the problem and how does Paul answer the problem? What does he say to them? Well, the problem was that the Lord's Supper was served in the context of this greater love feast. It was indeed a potluck. Uh, People brought their own food to the meal. Some were bringing lots of food and, uh, and pigging out on it. And some were bringing very little, perhaps the poor in the congregation. And they were being left out of the meal. And others said, well, you know about that wine, a little bit is good, but a lot is better. And they were getting drunk. By the way, we might just add that it would be impossible for them to get drunk if the wine was, in fact, unfermented. 
Now, let me hasten to add that here at Redeemer, at our potluck dinners next week after church, I love that we always have leftovers. It seems like there's always extra food on the table so that if you leave hungry, it's not because there wasn't enough food for you. But most importantly, you have to see this, that at Redeemer and many other churches that that do have potluck dinners, we very clearly separate the Lord's Supper as a part of worship from that after-dinner meal at which we enjoy fellowship and share life together. But at Corinth, these things were intertwined, and their manners and their selfishness And their failures to love one another and consider one another are causing divisions among them, Paul says, factions. And maybe it was a reflection of the pre-existing factions. There's the Peter party, the Paul party, you know, there was the Apollos party. And maybe they were all sitting down and these guys had full Avignon, you know, and these guys didn't get shrimp cocktail, whatever it is. And Paul goes so far as to say that it's so bad, he can't even call it the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 20 and 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. But of course, that's what they think they're doing. For in eating, he says, each one gets, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not, he says. So, Paul rebukes them. Then he instructs them. And then he warns them about the way they partake of the Lord's Supper. In verses 7, here's your outline. In verses 17 to 23, he rebukes them. And he calls on them to observe the Lord's Supper the Lord's way. Then in verses 23 to 26, he instructs them about the meaning of the supper and the elements involved and what we're actually doing when we partake. And then in verses 27 through 34, he warns them. He warns them about the proper disposition of the person who comes to the table. So those three big things, in the first place, he rebukes them. Consider it with me, verses 17 to 23. Paul begins here, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now remember, this is the church that the Apostle Paul himself planted. He lived among them for a year and a half. He served the Lord's Supper probably hundreds of times as they often celebrated even midweek and during the week and sometimes daily. And he's only been gone a couple of years and already they are a mess. And we ought to take comfort in that. We ought to recognize that God's church is a mess and has always been a mess And only in heaven will all our wrinkles be ironed out. Perfection is coming, friends, but it hasn't arrived. And we should take comfort in this, that not every doctrine in the church is simple and straightforward so that it's immediately obvious to every believer exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing. And that's okay, 
Now, that's not an excuse for burying our head in the sand and saying, well, you know, we can never know and it doesn't matter. And you celebrate supper one way and I'll do it another way and let's just all go home happy. It's also not an excuse for saying every view and practice is okay and it doesn't matter as long as we're sincere about it. But it does remind us, friends, that controversies in the church are absolutely unsurprising. God's people have struggled with how to administer the Lord's Supper from the very beginning of Christianity. And at Redeemer, we want people to ask, why do we do what we do? And it's okay to ask that question. I want to invite those kinds of questions. So here's the big issue at Corinth. Here's the big problem. The, the Corinthian Christians allowed tradition and not God's divine commandment to rule their practice of the Lord's Supper. They had a tradition, and Paul says, in this I cannot commend you. Get rid of it. Listen to me, he says, not your tradition. Verse 23, 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then he goes on to explain how they ought to be doing it. You see what he's doing there. He's distinguishing what they're doing based on the tradition of their church from what Paul had taught them that Paul himself had received from Jesus and been taught. So we want to say that not everything practiced in the early church should be practiced today. Not everything the early church did has divine authority. Only what God's word declares has authority. And we must listen to God's truth from God's word and not the church's tradition from man's word. Now listen, absolutely, Tradition is neither holy good nor holy bad. Sometimes tradition is bad. Sometimes it is good. Sometimes it's bad. You remember Jesus was critical of the Jews and their traditions on a regular and repeated basis. In Matthew 15, he says to them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Paul himself had, had once been led astray by tradition. In Galatians 1.14, he laments. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And yet Paul confesses the traditions of my fathers hadn't led me close to Jesus. They hadn't led me to believe in Jesus. They had led me to hate him. And to fight against him. No wonder in Colossians 2 verse 8. Paul will say. See to it that no one takes you captive. By philosophy. And empty deceit. According to human tradition. And not according to Christ. So sometimes tradition is bad. And Jesus was regularly in Paul too. Saying it's bad. And yet. Some tradition is good, and following them is to be commended. In, in chapter 11 of this book, verse 2, Paul says, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. There were some things they were doing that were commendable. And in um, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 
In other words, the Apostle Paul says, you know, I did pass on to you a tradition by spoken word. I was in your face and by letters I sent to you. And I want you to hold on to those things. And frankly, friends, we have those letters and we have those traditions we are to hold on to. So not all tradition is bad in the Bible. Especially when it's been given by Jesus and an apostle and it's authoritative. But not all traditions are good. What traditions should we keep? What should we get rid of? Well, the only way to tell the difference between good and bad traditions is not how far back in church history they go. Nor how many have followed those traditions or are doing so today. But to compare the practice of the church with the only infallible rule of faith and practice, which is the word of God. Again and again, the true Jewish tradition was wrong and needed to be corrected by God's word. And again and again, in the history of the church, the Christian tradition has been wrong and needs to be corrected and reformed according to God's word. So Paul tells the Corinthians, the Lord's Supper, he says, is bread and wine, not pot roast potatoes and pie. We're not free to add or subtract the elements And it's not up to us to make our own sacrament, he says. It's only safe for us to follow God's word and not the practice of the church if the practice of the church can't be shown to have God's sanction. So here's Paul the reformer calling Corinth away from their traditions and back to God's truth. That's the first thing, and I know that was a lot. That's the first thing I want you to see. Now what is his instruction then about the Lord's Supper? Well, he has to highlight three things. He has something to say about the past, the present, and the future. In other words, in the Lord's Supper, we look back in the past at Christ. And we look in the present to Christ. And we look forward to the future with Christ. We look back. That's the first thing. We look back. He says it's a commemoration of his death. Verses 24 and 25. When, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise with the wine, he said, drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. So what's happening there? Well, normally at the Passover, which is when Jesus instituted the supper, at the Passover, the presider of it would have gotten to the bread serving and he would have taken the bread and said, this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. He would have, the presider would have been explaining the meaning of the Passover via the, the food in the supper. Now Jesus takes that bread and says, in a sense, this is my body or the body of my affliction, which I will suffer for you on your behalf. Just as God led the people of Israel out of bondage in slavery in Egypt, Through the exodus, so I will lead my people out of bondage to sin, evil, the devil, and death. And into the liberation of the children of God. Just as we ate the Passover meal, uh, the night before redemption in Egypt. So now on the night before 
the redemption Jesus accomplishes upon the cross, he eats that meal again. And he's saying, in a sense, I'm the ultimate Moses. I'm the ultimate Exodus. I am your salvation. I am your deliverer. And all the other sacrifices have pointed to me. This is my body and my death is for you. And it's the most important thing. So, so elsewhere, Paul in this letter says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is saying, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I give myself to you. You remember me at this meal. I want you to eat. I want you to eat and remember me. Now look, as Tim Keller says, you can have a meal piled high in front of you, cooked to perfection, and still starve to death. Why? If you don't eat it, if you don't appropriate it, if you don't take it and use it for what it's for, you've got to take it. And so also at the supper, we take and we eat, we appropriate what is offered to us, and we do so, friends, by faith. By faith. Faith is spiritual eating. It's consuming, receiving, appropriating to ourselves the forgiveness and redemption purchased by Jesus in his body given for us. We can never commemorate that death too often because we can never think about our forgiveness too often. So that's the first thing. We commemorate his death. We look back. The second, we look to Christ. And this meal points to a covenant relationship with God through Christ. Uh, The language of covenant is in the administration. In verse 25, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's the language of new covenant. What's he talking about? It's covenantal language. Covenantal language is the language of a binding relationship ratified by blood. In Exodus 24, the, in the Old Covenant with the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel made their oath of allegiance before God and Moses took blood and splattered the people, sprinkled blood on them. Now Jesus is saying, I'm making a new covenant between you and God. And the basis of that relationship is me, my blood, my blood shed for your transgressions so that you can be forgiven. And it is on the basis of me that you will have a right relationship with God. You will have a covenant relationship with God. Though the Israelites have failed, though you're a failure... I will establish the covenant between God and you. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Now we might pause there and just say this, that we have no need in the new covenant for bloody signs. In the old covenant, they had had bloody signs. Circumcision and Passover were both bloody. But in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which have replaced them, are unbloody signs because the true blood of Jesus has been once for all shed to get you everything God has ever promised to you. So we have unbloody signs. And in this meal, 
We see the ratification of the new covenant. We see the basis upon which the new covenant is built. And we have a new relationship with God, a binding relationship, in which we get all God's blessings based on the work of another in our place. He bore the curse of the broken old covenant that we, through faith in him, might get all the blessings of the grace of the new covenant. He drank the cup of judgment that we might drink the cup of blessing. It's a covenant that can't be broken. It can't be annulled. It cannot be undone. There's no divorce from this covenant. It's assigned and sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And in giving us this meal here at this table, he's saying to us again and again, I am yours and you are mine. I will be your God and you will be my people. I am one with you and you are one with me. You have right now relationship with God and acceptance with him by my work for you. So, so we recognize not only that we commemorate the death of Christ, but that we are by Christ in covenant relationship with God right now. And we look forward in the third place to highlight three things. We look forward to Christ and his consummation. Verse 26 says, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. And there's a sense in which he's reminding us that we're going to live in between the times. We're going to live in the already and the not yet. We're going to live in the time between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we've not already arrived. We're already in the already. The the decisive event that delivers us has been accomplished. Redemption has already come. But redemption is not not yet, or it's not yet. It's not fully consummated in the glory that yet awaits. Uh, We then, as we partake of this meal, we proclaim his death until he comes. And so, in a sense, we... We, as we partake of this meal, we, we sit in anticipation. Uh, we, we're, we're encouraged to sit on the edge of our seat, waiting for the Lord to come in the fullness of his glory, for the new heavens and the new earth to come in its fullness, and for us to join with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast at a much greater meal than this meal is but a foretaste of. And so we are not yet home, but home is a certainty, and we celebrate that. We celebrate. We look at the the commemoration of the death of Christ, the covenant relationship with, with God we have by Christ, and we anticipate the consummation of this relationship. Those are the three things I'd highlight about Paul's instructions. Now, we have to close with this. In verses 27 through 34, Paul lays out a warning to them. And to us about those who eat the meal. And he speaks here at verse 27 about eating in an unworthy manner. Notice the language. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul here is not talking about continuing sinfulness in the life of a Christian. 
as if you can't partake of the Lord's Supper if you're struggling with sins. The Supper is for you because you sin. The Savior is for you because you need Him. That's not what he's talking about, but this has been tragically misunderstood again and again by the people of God. And there's a kind of view of this that says, well, you know, what we really need to do when we come to this table is we need to root out every unconfessed sin that we can think of in our lives. And we need to we need to search ourselves with the kind of scrutiny that finds the very darkest places of our conscience where things are hidden and bring those out so that we can be worthy of the meal. And that is not what Paul is speaking of here when he says don't partake in an unworthy manner. The result of that thinking, of course, is this, that all kinds of people who need this supper, people who are broken, people who are sinful, people who are weary of sin, people who want the struggle with sin to be over and just want Jesus in all his fullness, those very people don't come to this meal. And maybe that's not your issue, but it is tragically one in the mind of many people. We don't come, friends, to this meal because we are worthy. This is a table of mercy for the unworthy. Paul's emphasis here, emphasis here by saying don't partake in an unworthy manner is not about who you are as a worthy person. You're not. But it is about the manner in which you come to this meal and doing so in a way appropriate to the meal. Unworthy doesn't refer to the person, but the manner in which the person partakes. If perfection is required, no one will eat. No, no, a Christian's response to Jesus, if they see Jesus rightly, is like the response of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw Jesus, the Lord, high and lifted up upon his throne. And the temple was filled with the glory of Christ. And he said, "Is woe to me, woe to me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell a people among a people of unclean lips." It, it's the right response to Jesus is the response Peter had when he was in the boat with Jesus, and he realized the one in the boat was his Maker, and he said, "Get away from me, Lord! I am a sinful man." That's the right response to Jesus. That's why Calvin said this. Therefore, this is the worthiness. The best and only kind we can bring to God. What is that? To offer our vileness and so to speak our unworthiness to him. So that his mercy may make us worthy of him. To despair in ourselves that we may be comforted in him. To abase ourselves so that we may be lifted up by him. To accuse ourselves that we may be justified by him. And moreover, to aspire to that unity which he commends to us in his supper. And as he makes us, all of us, one in himself. To desire one soul, one heart, one tongue for us all. You catch that? This isn't about making ourselves worthy. But it's, a com- it's about coming to the meal in a manner appropriate. What is that? Needy. Needy for Jesus. 
thankful for Jesus and what he did for you. Longing for Jesus and the fullness of his glory. Proclaiming his death until he comes. Looking to him for a relationship with God. Looking forward to his return. And it is about coming to this table with an eye to our fellow partakers. And a willingness to love them as Jesus has loved us. And so he goes on to say, examine yourselves and discern the body. By discerning the body, there's a great debate here. Does he mean the physical body of Jesus? In which case, uh, he wants us to think correctly about Jesus and the relationship of the bread to his physical body. Or does he mean discern the body meaning the church as the body of Christ, in which case he wants us to appropriately consider our brothers and sisters who gather with us at the table and our relationships to them. I lean to the body equals church view, though I'm not certain. And it may be Paul actually has in mind both because he has used the word body to refer to the physical body of Jesus given for us and to the church as the body of Christ again and again over the course of the last couple chapters. So, in, in any case, this is the thing over which the Corinthians had failed. They weren't considering one another. They weren't loving one another. They were selfish and pigging out and getting drunk and every man for himself, so to speak. And so he goes on to say, some of them had become ill. And maybe as I read that, your ears perked up. So I want to say a few words about that by way of closing. Some of them, he says, have become ill. That is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. They've died because of God's judgment against them for their sin against the body of Christ, is what he says. Sickness and death, Paul says, had come to them on account of their behavior at the table. Now we have to pause and say this, sickness and death do not always come to us on account of our particular personal sins. You cannot draw a direct line from someone getting ill or someone dying to any one particular thing they did wrong. In fact, in John chapter 9, the question is put to Jesus, why was this man born blind? I mean, was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither, <laughs> neither. But it was that the work of God may be glorified or might be displayed in him. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. And yet the man was blind. And it was for the glory of God. So we have to say that if someone is sick or has died, it is not. It is not necessarily that God is judging them. There are many other reasons for this. But in this case, at Corinth, Paul does draw that line. There was illness in the congregation. Now, how do we understand that? What does he mean? Now, your old King James Version says we need to to discern the body and examine ourselves lest we be damned. But the word damned there is not the word that's being used. It's the word judged, and there's a distinction. And he literally, he does not mean that the believing Christians who partake in an unworthy manner have fallen ill and died because they're being damned forever for their sin. That is not what he means. He means they are receiving fatherly chastisement out of the love of the Father for them and the believing community. 
I mean, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and God isn't going to renege on that promise. But God does fatherly discipline those he loves, and he does it in order to wean us all from sin, make us weary and wary of sin, so that we might love one another the way he intended. And that's what was happening at Corinth, because it was a, it was a party and it was a feast. But it was a farce of a loving assembly. So we conclude in the Bible, we come to this, friends, to this meal. We come to this, not because we feel we're really on top of our sins, but because we feel we need help with our sins. And in the supper, Jesus says, I died for you. Let me reassure you. You are safe with God. I bring you to God. I covenant God and you together forever in relationship. And you are bound for glory in me. And then that supper should be a demonstration between us of our mutual love. Because we have been so loved by him. We don't hold one another in contempt. Because at this meal, he doesn't hold us in contempt. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the meal. We bless you and thank you that you, have, that you have given us the word of promise, which is sure and certain. But you have not just given us a bare word, but you have given us signs and seals that we can eat, see, touch, and taste that, that strengthen faith in the promise. Do so tonight for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.